0: Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast, and we're going to put a wrap on the 2022 Seattle Seahawks season. But where one thing ends, another begins. And if any of you know me or have listened to any of my previous podcasts or heard me on other podcasts, you know that as much as I love my Seattle Seahawks and analyzing them, often overanalyzing them, talking about them, you know that I enjoy the off season, maybe as much, if not more, than the regular season. It's the team building. It's the stuff that goes on at the VMAC to improve the roster. You know, each season tells its own story. Let's write the story for next year. We have a lot more information on this roster now than we did at the beginning of the year, and that helps us to look ahead. And we're going to do that Today, I am Dan Viens. I am your host. The Seahawks finished the season nine and nine when you include the playoffs, uh, getting blown out in Santa Clara on Saturday. Um, I appreciate Brandon uh, and Mookie for uh, breaking that down and uh, and sitting in for me on the reaction. So Saturday, I just I was able to watch the game live, but I wasn't able to do a show afterwards. So I'll give you my thoughts uh, just generally on how the game went and what it says about this team and where they're at. Uh, general thoughts on the 2022 season. And then Dana and I are going to get together later this week and kind of uh, put our official wrap on the season all together. And then we're going to look ahead. And I'm going to do some of that today as well, because that is already where the narrative has shifted um, pretty significantly on Twitter. I have had more debates in the last 48 hours with people about what to do next than I had all season long. Um, And I sense that there is a real enthusiasm And a lot of hope among the fan base right now, because everyone, even the the casual fan, is aware of the fact that we exceeded expectations. The team has a talented young base because of the outstanding draft and and some of the other acquisitions we've made over the last couple of years, and that we have resources heading into the offseason that we're not used to having. And that provides an opportunity. Certainly, it's not set in stone. I can't sit here today and tell you the Seahawks are going to be this or going to be that. The younger version of me would have done that because that's how I looked at things. This is going to happen. This this part of the roster is a given. All we have to do is add to it a little bit and it'll take us where we need to go. I think my focus on that started to shift. First of all, you just get a different perspective as you get older, right? <laughs> I'm going to go back a ways. Uh, those of you who are Mariner fans, it, and you remember the Eric Bedard trade back in the '90s, when coming off a good season, the, the the Mariners thought, and we all thought that they were good enough to contend for the playoffs and possibly a World Series. All they needed was one more good starting pitcher, so they gave up a ton, gave up five players, including some of their top prospects, to get Bedard. And uh, I don't have to tell you how that turned out. If you don't know how it turned out, just Google it. It's a fun read. Painful, but also fun. And I'm going to start there. I think I think a lot of our fan base and listeners to the show are also at least casually Mariner fans. I think there's some analogies and some parallels to be made there. With rebuilds, Seahawks were was a lot quicker than the Mariners was. But the way the season ended and where the team stands going into the offseason. The Mariners break their playoff drought, get into, the, get into the postseason for the first time in 20 years, win their first series, and then they face the Houston Astros. Far and away, hands down, the best team in baseball. They proved that, went on to win the World Series. Mariners played them tight, played them closer than anyone else did, even though they were swept in the series. Each game was was close. And so when that series ended, we got an up-close and personal look at, there's the best team in the league. Here's us. How do we match up? How far away are we from being that, from beating them and being where they are? And so in that sense, there was an overriding feeling coming out of that game on Saturday. The first half was fun, and and I'm not going to you know break all that down because that's been done, and, and now we're 48 hours after the fact. Um, it was fun to see them compete on the road against what I think is the best team in the NFC, if not the NFL, And they really fought and they really competed. Ultimately, you can pick apart mistakes and penalties and a fumble, but the talent discrepancy was too great. Talent covers up a lot of warts and a lot of mistakes. You can make mistakes. You can blow an assignment. And talent can make up for that. The margin for error that the 49ers have is much greater than the Seahawks. The Seahawks have to play almost perfectly assignment sound, execution-wise, to beat a team like the 49ers. Whereas the 49ers can beat the Seahawks on most days without their best effort. And they proved that on Saturday. So Seahawks, just like the Mariners got to see it with with the Astros, got to end their season. The last taste in their mouth was losing to the best team in the conference, which just happens to be their biggest division rival. So going into the offseason, and you can debate whether that's more motivation or not. I would argue that front offices are always trying to win. <laughs> they have their jobs to save, and they, they're they driven by a competitive fire, and they want to win. But seeing it up close, they know exactly how far they need to go to compete with the 49ers. And Pete Carroll today, both on his radio show on, uh, on Seattle Sports 710 and in his postseason press conference today, was asked point blank multiple times, how far away from the 49ers are you? And there were two things that struck me about his answers today. Pete Carroll, I think, has become a little bit more forthcoming since the Russell Wilson trade over the last year in in talking about where he thinks the team is. He generally plays things close to the vest, and sometimes he kind of talks in hints, and you have to read between the lines. I thought he was pretty straightforward today. He was asked point blank, how far away are you from the 49ers? And the first thing he talked about is their front four. Their front seven, but specifically their front four. And the problems that that defensive line they have cause for you. And it's not just Nick Bosa. It's Nick Bosa. It's Eric Armstead. It's Javon Kinlaw. It's the depth that they have there. They don't just have one guy that can cause a problem for you. They have multiple guys. They can come at you from a bunch of different ways. And he talked about that a lot. And then there was something on the radio show that I thought he said today uh, that was telling, I'll get to that in a second though. I've, I've outlined four things coming out of that game on Saturday that I think that game told us about the Seahawks and where they are and what this season told us. Number one is, for all the concern over the last seven or eight years about their ability to draft and acquire talent, I think they proved this last offseason that their player evaluation skills and their process is good enough for us to have confidence heading into this offseason. And maybe what we saw after the Russell Wilson trade was that the criticism levied against John Schneider and the Seahawks over the last several years about their inability to draft may have been overlooking the fact or not putting enough weight on the fact that they never got to draft in the top 15, let alone the top 10 or top five. And that often they try to make up for that with volume by trading down. And I'm going to use that term again, the margin for error as, as inexact a science as drafting is anyway, even at the top of the draft, the margin for error is so much less as you go deeper down the draft. So you take more risks. Maybe you over, you know, value a player because you're looking at what he could be instead of just taking the best player there. Last year, given some extra draft resources, I thought it was clear that they took positions of need. They took best player available. They didn't overthink it. And what do we end up with as a result? Two starting offensive tackles who are really good and are going to be the bookends there for years. That's a position you don't have to worry about. After years and years of wringing our hands over who is, you know, which journeyman are they going to bring in to play right tackle this year? And is our left tackle going to be able to stay healthy? Defensively, Tariq Woolen, the, the find in the fifth round, a borderline all pro as a rookie. Kobe Bryant, his contributions there. Kenneth Walker and, and what a revelation he was. Proving all, all those people that think a second round pick is, is something you shouldn't be spending on a running back. Showed you his value. And then there are some guys that haven't even haven't even cashed in their chips yet. I think Dariq Young just scratched the surface. I think we saw some hints later in the year about how he could be used in the offense. Tyreek Smith, the defensive end out of Ohio State slash outside linebacker, um, was a guy they were really excited about, a guy that can get after the quarterback with a really high motor, got hurt right at the end of preseason or, and uh, had to be put on an IR for the whole year. So that's like a, that's like a kind of a red shirt year for him. And now we go into the season with The top five pick, the fifth pick, the 20th pick, two picks in the second round, two picks in the fifth round. Possibly more to come. I'll touch on that in a minute. I think it's safe to say that we can trust this front office and their ability to evaluate players. And I haven't even mentioned the faith that they had in Geno Smith. And Pete was adamant. This is a guy we like. This is a guy we like. This is a guy we like. We trust Geno Smith. I know he didn't have a spectacular preseason, but trust us. The things that we see in practice are going to carry over to games and they were right. They were right. That's number one. Number two, Carroll today, as I said, when asked about how good the 49ers are and how far they have to go, he specifically talked about their defensive line. And then I thought this was, this was un-Carol-like in the way he answered this question. Uh, Brock or Salk, I can't remember which one asked him uh, how many after Carroll said, the 49ers have guys that cause problems for you. He was asked point blank, How many guys on your defense do you feel like fit that mold that cause problems that could play on that level? Interestingly enough, the first guy out of his mouth, he mentioned Jordan Brooks, who's going to be coming off an ACL and might not be available till late next season. Then he mentioned Quandre Diggs and he mentioned Tariq Woolen. Uh, interesting, he didn't mention Nuosu, but he just it just might have slipped his mind, but didn't talk about a single guy up front. He mentioned several times about how the play in the trenches need to be better. And then in his press conference this afternoon was asked a lot of specific questions about scheme. And he talked a lot about execution and how they had to change their assignments and their run fits throughout the year many times. And he implied that maybe the players just weren't good enough. So for those of you concerned that they're going to do something weird with the top pick or take a receiver, or maybe even a quarterback, and that still could be in play, we're going to talk about that a lot um, as we head in, you know, into draft season. Um, make no mistake about it. I think I think in a very similar fashion to the way they knew last year they had to address the offensive line at the top of that draft multiple times. That they're going to attack the front four and the front seven. In a similar fashion this offseason. Number three, in his uh, press conference this afternoon, uh, I thought he did a pretty sly job of making it known to the league that that fifth pick is up for sale if you want to come get it. Um, and he may have also been kind of setting the stage and prepping the fan base a little bit for the fact that they may consider taking a quarterback. He talked specifically about how good those quarterbacks were at the top of the draft and how they're going to do a lot of work on him. And they're excited to be in a position to have that opportunity if they choose to take it. And I'm not going to get deep into that today, but I think you've heard me say before. The debate out there is, is Gino good enough and do you want to pay him the money or do you want to go with a rookie? It's not that Simple. When you have an opportunity at the top of a draft to take a quarterback that you think might be a franchise changer, it usually doesn't matter who you have in-house. This isn't just, do you stick with Gino and pay him, or do you take a young guy? They could do both. John Schneider fell in love with Josh Allen, Talked to the Cleveland Browns that year about trading Russell Wilson for the number one pick so he could take Allen. Fell in love with Patrick Mahomes. And, and remember that year, there was a lot of question marks about Patrick Mahomes. There was a reason to think he might be there at the end of the first round when the Seahawks picked. And it was reported that if he had been, Schneider would have taken him, regardless of the fact he had a Russell Wilson on his roster in his prime. So make no mistake about it. I'm getting off in a little bit of a tangent here, but if John Schneider, through the draft evaluation process, comes to believe that one of those quarterbacks is is a guy that tilts the room, as he puts it, changes the future of your franchise. And you're sitting there at the fifth pick and he falls to you, any franchise, any general manager who passes on that opportunity, would be open to scrutiny because simply the hardest position to fill in football. But we're not going to talk about that today any more than I already have. The number four point I want to make is that Carroll doesn't sound like a guy who wants this rebuild to turn into a two- or three-year project. He does not. He talks in a tone and a manner which makes it clear to me that he wants to make up that ground between the Seahawks and the 49ers now. And he wants to contend soon. And so that would imply that they simply can't count on nailing this draft and going out and contending for a Super Bowl next year. You cannot put that much trust in young players. So it'll be a mix. You know, somewhere in there, they're going to be counting. They're going to be looking for some veterans from outside the organization to add something to the roster uh, maybe not necessarily a, a big splash name move because there really isn't a lot of salary cap space to do that with, but get some impact, a guy like Nwosu potentially. Um, and then also development and maybe a next step from some guys that are already on the roster. So that's where I feel like the team is. Uh, I, and, you know, there are those of you out there probably listening today. Uh, certainly there's there's many that are on Twitter um who believe that 9 and 8 was a little bit of smoke and mirrors that they had one of the easiest schedules in the league i would argue they should have beat the raiders in carolina that's 11 wins they had they had opportunities to beat tampa bay they should have beat atlanta so that goes both ways you cannot be upset with where this this franchise is and if your biggest if your biggest issue with this roster is Ah, Gino's good, but I don't think he's good enough to pay 30 million to, then you're in pretty good shape. It's a good problem to have. We are going to do something this off season. Um, you know how much I love doing mock drafts and I know how much many of you like doing mock drafts and you know how I know, because for every one of you out there that says, these are stupid <laughs> or it's too soon. Uh, there are 10 of you who not only will read and comment on my mock drafts, but when we post it on the field goals website, you will comment and they get, it gets some of the best traffic on the site. It's a lot of fun speculation and conjecture, and it's made even more fun these days by all the simulators so that you can all play at home and you can all work out uh, your favorite draft scenarios. And this year, more than ever before I have found that when I put a mock draft out on Twitter, instead of just comments, and reaction back, I get, oh, here's my screenshots of my mock draft and a lot of comparisons. Um, we're going to do mock draft Mondays this offseason. Not every Monday. That would be a little overkill. But every other Monday, I will do a new mock draft. And I'll do it a different way and take a different approach each time. Sometimes it'll be with trade. Sometimes without. Sometimes we'll specifically target, okay, let's take a quarterback at five and see how that looks. Just to give you an idea and a perspective. And I will I will start this with this disclaimer cuz we're going to do one today to to get this kicked off. And mostly today I want to do it just to show you the value of the picks that they have now that they're set. And here's the disclaimer. I am more prepared heading into draft season than I ever have been before. As far as I've just been paying closer attention throughout the college football season, knowing we had high picks. It's kind of hard to devote a lot of time and energy to watching film and watching college football games in the past. When you know you're picking 26th 27th, you don't have a second, you don't have a first one year. It was a lot more fun watching college football this year. That's for sure. Um, and it'll be a lot more fun watching the combine and the senior bowl in a couple of weeks. And those evaluation, um, tools will take on even greater meaning for the Seahawks than they normally do and for the fans. It just generates more interest. So here's my disclaimer. I have done more work on this draft to this point than I ever have in the past, but I don't know it all. And I don't know every position intimately. And I still, when I go through these simulations for the most part, I have guys that I like and I try and shape it that way. This one that I did right before I hit record worked out about as well as any simulation I've ever done that when I went through and made these picks hoping that, well, I better take this guy here. Hoping that guy is there at my next pick. It worked out. I didn't get sniped on anybody. Um, So this will be a fun one just to show you what I think can happen with the picks that they have with one exception. I did for this first one, Make a trade down from five. After Carol's comments today, just seeing a lot of stuff online. You're just seeing how this draft kind of works out. What all the big boards look like and things that I read and hear from other draft analysts and people that make a living doing this. And I'll start with this. This first round appears to be about as shallow of a class as we've seen in a long time. The NLA or NLI, name, likeness, image, rules in college football have changed the landscape more good players who are being projected as first and second round picks are staying in school or going back to school or entering the transfer portal for one more year than ever before I mean I spent two months doing draft sims targeting Jared verse an edge player I really love out of Florida State with the Seahawks second first round pick and he decided to stay in school that was a shocker Michael Penix Jr., the outstanding University of Washington quarterback, staying in school was a shocker. Sam Hartman, quarterback from Wake Forest, deciding to enter the portal transferring to Notre Dame instead of entering the draft was a shocker. And there are many, many more. Just today, C.J. Stroud announced he is declaring for the draft, but the deadline's tomorrow and there was some questions. Certainly, Ohio State um, probably made a late run at trying to keep him with some NLI money. So it's changed the game. You're going to hear after this draft, or maybe even leading up to it, a lot of teams are going to say, you know, we only had 15 first round grades in this draft. 12 first round grades, 13. And that dictates what teams do. And the Seahawks sitting at 20, are going to be right in that pocket where you're not going to get a first round graded player, most likely. And, and, and the way the big boards appear to look right now around that 20th pick, doesn't really match up with what the Seahawks really need. A lot of you said, take take interior offensive line, take a center or a guard in the first round. That'd be a terrible use of that pick. There just aren't enough guys rated that highly in that range. And so with that disclaimer out of the way, here's what I ended up with. And if you're watching the, the, uh, the live stream, let's screen share so you can see what I came up with. So I traded down from pick five to nine. And here's what I did. I tried to put as much, uh, factual based historical thought into this as I could to get proper value. We know this teams trading up for quarterbacks tend to overpay what any of the trade value charts you can find out there. There's one that Jimmy Johnson created. And then there's, there's one adapted from that, that I tend to use, uh, by a guy named Rich Hill. And what he did is he actually took years of data of actual trades, And tried to extrapolate that into a formula um, to make it more realistic based on things that have actually happened. So the closest I could come to finding um, a trade up to the fifth pick to take a quarterback, because that's what Carol was talking about today. That's why I say when I say leveraging that pick top four, most likely is going to go in some form or fashion like this. The two best defensive players in the draft, the ones that all of us have wanted for the last couple of months when the Seahawks were for a, quite a bit of time, they're sitting at number two or number three. Um, Jalen Carter, defensive tackle out of Georgia, Will Anderson, edge player out of Alabama. Uh, assuming those two players go in the top four and the other two picks ahead of the Seahawks are in some way or another two quarterbacks. It leaves the fifth pick as the pivot point, in my mind, to the first round. Because this draft is unique in a way we haven't seen in a long time, quarterback-wise. There's three that most analysts believe can be franchise quarterbacks. Two are fairly sure things. A third one is a polarizing prospect. And then the fourth one is is really polarizing. Bryce Young, CJ Stroud are the two that seem to be givens. And they're the two that I'm going to assume are going to go in the top four. Will Levis out of Kentucky is another guy that through the draft process, even though he didn't have as good a year last year, as teams were expecting. (laughs) Okay, so that's Butch. If you can hear that in the background, that's my cat. He is trying to claw his way through my bedroom door to get out here and make an appearance on the show. Uh, sometimes just so you know, when you listen to the past, sometimes he's here all around me and just doesn't make a peep. Sometimes he hops up in my lap and you'd never know it. Other times I put him in the bedroom. He's just fine. He just, he just threw a fit. Uh, maybe he doesn't like, maybe that's his comment. Maybe he just doesn't think Will Levis is a franchise quarterback. Um, there are those who don't, a lot of fans look at his production last year. There are reasons to explain that or, or potentially excuse that that I won't go into until we go deeper into actually breaking down the position groups throughout the offseason. But but he's the kind of guy that, especially through the combine and, 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 um, and, and pro days and things like that in the offseason, some teams are going to fall in love with him. And then there's Anthony Richardson out of Florida, who might have the highly, highest ceiling of any of the four guys, but only has one year as a full-time starter, was erratic at times. You can see how the the great tools and the traits, but you can also see that he's probably the biggest project of the four. After those four, nothing. <laughs> I mean, you can make a case that Hendon Hooker out of Tennessee might be a uh, a second-round value, and he's a guy that I've liked um, In the past, I thought he reminded me a lot of Geno Smith in a lot of ways, but uh, suffered his third ACL tear at the end of last season, probably looking at a red shirt, and he's already 25 years old. So let's just say that there's those four, and then really, you have to squint really hard to find another quarterback in this process that looks like an NFL starter, and that's unusual. Um, That's unusual, and it's because a lot of those guys chose to stay in school. So, with that being said, if there's a team that falls in love with Will Levis, for example, our pick is the one he's going to have to come up and get him from. And the team I've identified for the sake of this simulation is the Carolina Panthers. There are a lot of obvious reasons. One, there's the connection with Scott Fitterer. Used to be part of the Seahawks front office working for John Schneider. They know each other well. There is Carolina's um, unabashed love for Will Levis, which comes straight from the owner, David Tepper. He is on the record of saying he loves Will Levis. Um, We'll get some clarity when they hire a head coach. So they go defense, they go offense. Sean Payton is going to interview there. Um, So I worked out a trade where Carolina would come up from number nine to number five. And here's how I worked it out. The closest thing I could find is the Buffalo Bills trading up from 12 to seven to get Josh Allen. To move up those five spots, they had the luxury of an extra second round pick that year in the middle of the second round. So they gave up number 53 and number 56 to move up from 12 to seven. Here's how I went about it. Here was my process. I looked at the trade chart. 12 to seven is a 79-point discrepancy. Picks 53 and 56 equal 204 points. That's an overpay of 125 points. It's a massive overpay. A lot of times the trades we see on draft day are under the point values of these charts. They're certainly not an exact science. So to try and find um, equal value there, knowing Carolina would be coming up to get a quarterback. If Carolina goes from nine to five, it's 81 points. Almost exactly the same. So they'd have to overpay by 206 points to equal what the bills paid to move up and get Josh Allen. Carolina does have an extra second round pick, number 39 at the top of the second round, or or they have an extra pick at the end of the second round. And so it wouldn't be as, um, they wouldn't be giving up as much. They wouldn't be leaving the cupboard as bare. They would still have a pick in the second round. So if they gave us pick number 39, and pick number 89, which is a late third that they have, it's almost an exact match in point value to what the Bills gave up to move up and get Josh Allen. So, for moving down four spots, the Seahawks would pick up an extra early second and a late third. And that's how I went about this, this draft. And you can see I'm sharing it here. Um I have talked on Twitter, if you follow me, about Tyree Wilson a lot. And if I'm going to move down from 5 to 9, I need to know I can still get an impact defensive lineman. And at 9, there's going to be three guys in play there. Miles Murphy, out of Clemson. Uh, Brian Brzee, also out of Clemson. Brzee is more of a defensive tackle, 6'5", 300. He can move inside out. He's a guy that I really like. I could have easily taken him here at 9. Miles Murphy is another bigger defensive end, which is something I think the Seahawks need. Watching the Cincinnati Bengals defensive line last night, you look at their guys, Trey Hendrickson on one side, Sam Hubbard on the other, the guys they have on the interior. Those guys aren't twitchy. They're not Daryl Taylor, Uchenna Nwosu, Boye Mafe built. They're not long and lean and dependent on speed and finesse. They're guys that can punch you in the mouth, beat you at the bull rush, hold the point of attack, be physical in the run game, and pressure the quarterback. I feel like that is the biggest thing missing. From this defensive line. So Murphy is 6'5, 275, I think, and he's gonna blow up the combine with this athleticism. But on tape, I see a guy that that is more dependent on just outside bull rush against inferior tackles. I don't see a lot of moves or hand usage. Tyree Wilson is more dynamic out of Texas Tech, six foot six, two hundred and seventy-six yards with incredibly long arms. I think he's that combination of stout against the run, really physical and strong willing to do the dirty work, high motor is on record as saying he wants to prove that he's the best defensive player in this draft, but also has enough, uh, bend and, uh, and quickness to the outside that he can beat you that way as well. Uh, he's a guy that I think even at number nine years down the road, uh, people will look back and say, "Mm, he was a value at nine. He was a steal number 20. I told you about the difficulty with this pick in that range. Number 20, go look at any of the big boards, run some of these simulators yourself. I use Pro Football Network because I think based on what I've seen that the big board looks the best. You can also click on and see some of their scouting reports. I've used Mock Draft Database because I like their interface, but no scouting reports. You don't even have size and weight. And then I don't use Pro Football Focus at all because their rankings don't seem to match up in any way, shape or form with what most scouts and analysts think. Um. So I don't even use them. And then uh, the draft network is reworking there, as I've talked about that on the show. When that comes back up and goes live, that's one that I'll play around with because I really trust um, uh, their evaluations. So at number 20, there's a bunch of corners there. And we can argue the merit of taking a corner there. Certainly that would make sense. Wide receiver might make sense at 20. Don't be shocked if they take one there because the guys you want aren't there at 20. There isn't a game-wrecking defensive tackle at 20. There isn't a center worthy of being taken at 20. It'd be a massive reach. There isn't even a guard that I like at 20. Maybe Peter Skoronsky, the left tackle uh, out of Northwestern, um, might be a guy that some people see as a guard instead of a tackle because he has shorter arms but I'm taking best value and I'm taking uh, Brian Brant's safety out of Alabama, six foot one ninety four, And I can hear you. I can hear you. I've had this debate multiple times over the last couple of days. We don't need a safety. We have Adams Diggs, and Ryan Neal. Let me say this right now. You cannot have both or all three of those guys in your roster next year. If you do, it's a horrible misuse of, of uh, payroll resources. Uh, Carol today reiterated Adams has a long way to go in his rehab and won't be ready for preseason or even the start of the season, most likely Um, that's ominous. Um, Diggs, you know, we, we talked on the show recently about how he's finally finished the season looking more like the player he was the year before, before his injury. And Ryan Neal's a free agent and, and y'all love him and y'all want him back on this team. And you're willing to fight me over the prospect of moving on from him, but he's going to get some money. He's going to make some money this off season. And, You're going to have to pay him to bring him back. And are you willing to pay Diggs, Adams, and Neal free agent money? I'm not. So I'm either moving on from Adams or letting Neal walk and hoping he signs a big enough deal to get a comp pick the next year. And I'm taking a guy like Brian Branch. What I like about Branch, and if you watched him in the the playoffs, you saw how dominating he can be. He He can play any position. He can play free safety or strong safety. He's certainly a guy that could that Diggs could pass the baton to when it's time, but he can also play the slot and play it exceptionally well. It's kind of how Alabama used him a lot. I think they call it their robber position. I may be off on that. Um, Which would allow Kobe Bryant to move back to the outside, which is something that I want to see. Brian Branch would contribute as a rookie, but he would also give you a long-term answer. He's a guy that could be on the field with Adams and Diggs or with Neal and Diggs. And then also give you uh, something long-term. So that's where I went at 20. I think that's value. That's exactly what you want to get out of a draft is value. In the second round, at number 37, I took Kalijah Kansi, defensive tackle out of Pittsburgh. And I know what some of you are going to say every time I, I talk about this guy. He's too small. It's too small. It doesn't fit the mold. Six foot, 276. YouTube Kalijah Kansi and watch his tape. I don't feel like the Seahawks necessarily need that traditional big gap-eating and block-eating nose tackle. They need a guy that can be dynamic and can penetrate that three-tech. Al Woods is coming back next year. He signed a two-year deal. He can be that guy. Shelby Harris might be back on this roster next year. Um, He's contractually um, obligated to the team, but we know how that can be. And he's actually a guy that they may consider either restructuring or cutting to, uh, get some cap relief. Um, you know, they may even be open to bringing Quentin Jefferson back again. He's a guy that can play inside and outside. Kalijah Kansi is never going to be a three down player. So don't get that twisted. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm saying he is a dynamic, unique talent, something the Seahawks do not have that you can rotate in and could really, really cause problems for the defense. Um, there are other guys there in that range that if you like them better, and that's that's the purpose of these mock drafts too. They aren't always like, this is what has to happen. This is what I feel like is the only option. It's just a representation. So if at 37, you want to take uh, Siaka uh, Ika from Baylor, 350 pounds, or Mazzie Smith out of Michigan, 340 pounds, Or uh, Gervin Dexter, if he falls there from Florida, he's a bigger guy. You want to take one of those guys because you just like the style better? Okay, fine. Put him in there. I'm just saying there is some value at that point in the second round at defensive tackle, and I just like Kansi's uniqueness. I think he's something that's that's rare and that could really, really benefit the pass rush. Um, Also in the second round, two picks later at 39, this is the pick that uh, we got from Carolina, Cedric Van Pran. Um, one of the top two centers in the draft out of Georgia. And if you watched him in the playoffs and in the final, man, he dominated. He's big, 6'4", 3'11", but he moves well. He can pull. When he gets his hands on you, you're done. He is the type of physical presence at center that we haven't seen under uh, Pete Carroll. And they need that. Teams started to pick on Austin Blythe and Gabe Jackson late in the year. That was the Achilles heel of that offensive line. Uh, a guy like Van Pran, and this is a good center draft. If you don't like Van Pran or if you don't think he's going to be there at 39, you can take Luke Whipler or uh, John Michael Schmitz or Alex Forsyth or Joe Tipman later on, um, Ola Watimi out of Michigan. It's a very good. This draft has multiple players that could start as rookies and be an upgrade over Austin Blythe, and I took Van Pran there. Third round. This is an example of something I don't think is going to happen. At pick number 57, I took Jalen Hylett. Hyatt, wide receiver, Tennessee. He's not going to be there at 57. Uh, six foot, 180 pounds. Uh, I think he's a, he'd be a great complement to DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, um, a guy that can get yards after the catch, who's dynamic, who has uh, elite downfield speed. Um, he's really electric with the ball in his hands. And I think he'd be the perfect complement, something they don't have. I think uh, for what you might get out of Jordan Addison and another player that I think the Seahawks would consider in the first round, um, especially if he falls to 20. Uh, I think Hyatt doesn't give you a whole lot less than that. It would be a fun player there. Then we move into the fourth round. We have two picks here again, because of the trade with the other pick that we got from Carolina at 92. Zach Zinter guard, Michigan, 6'6", 320. Just a physical force. You know, the ideal Jim Harbaugh offensive lineman, tough, gritty, will pancake you and drive you into the ground, but also solid enough in pass protection. I think he could start as a rookie too. Essentially, I'm looking for the Seahawks to do at guard and center what they did last year with the two tackles. Let's get two long-term starters out of this draft. I think Zach Zinter could be a guy that accomplishes that for you. Um, We need to address linebacker. And this was tough. Um, hold on. Okay, I thought so. I just caught uh, an error. In um, there's a player that I had at 83 before Zinter. Um, that uh that I just didn't get transferred over to the spreadsheet that I'm showing on the screen at 83. Jack Campbell, inside linebacker, Iowa, six five two forty five. Um, this is a guy that plays the interior. This is a guy who uh you're gonna hear all the cliches, blue collar, tough as nails. He takes on blocks, he sheds blocks, he sticks his nose in there in the run game. But look at those dimensions. 6'5", 245, reminds me of K.J. Wright. A little less athletic K.J. Wright. Tough, tough player. And a guy that could start in the middle, help make up for the loss of Jordan Brooks, and then you put him next to Brooks when he comes back fully healthy. And that could be a a real uh, upgrade over Cody Barton. Not quite as athletic. Uh, not quite as quick as Cody Barton, but bigger, longer rangier. And I think more productive. It's a tackling machine. So that's not showing on the screen if you're watching uh, the live stream, but Jack Campbell at 83 and then Zinter at 92. Then with my uh, next fourth round pick at 120, Dan Henley. So I'm going to address linebacker twice. Henley's a different player though. 6'2", 232. He can play inside linebacker, but he's more of a sideline to sideline guy and a guy you can move around and use on the inside or the outside. He's a guy that can get after the passer. He's a guy that can cover. He's incredibly quick. He forces turnovers. He always seems to be around the ball. I think he's a guy, too, that, that after this draft process probably isn't going to be there at 120, but for the sake of this assignment, he was. In the fifth round, Colby Woolen, defensive tackle Auburn. And this is just, uh, I wanted to add another young body to the defensive line and a guy that's different than Kansi. 6'5", 284. He's built more like Brian Brzee, just not quite as athletically explosive as Brzee. But in the fifth round, I think he's a guy um, that you can really develop. And, and he's a guy that's bigger and he can kind of play inside outside in that 3 4. Uh, my next fifth round pick, three picks later at 151, DJ Turner, cornerback, Michigan, six foot 180. Made uh, Fleischman's uh, freaks list this year. He's just an athletic freak, um, solid corner. Think um you know, Mike Jackson um, size, but faster, more explosive. Maybe kind of a mix between what you get with Trey Brown and and uh and Mike Jackson. Jackson's a free agent. Are they gonna bring him back? Are they gonna move uh Bryant back outside? Is Trey Brown gonna be the guy next year? Um we'll see. But it's never a bad idea to draft a cornerback every year and the Seahawks have had such great, uh such a great history with Fifth round cornerbacks, DJ Turner, um, really, really talented kid. And then the sixth round, I finished out the draft at pick 210 by adding to that running back room. Uh, Hard to see the Seahawks getting through a full draft without adding another running back. Chris Rodriguez out of Kentucky really fits those Seahawk dimensions. He's 5'11", 224. More of an inside tackle-to-tackle guy. Really physical, bruising runner. Um, And I think that would be a a nice compliment uh, to Kenneth Walker. So uh, first round, two picks. Uh, Tyree Wilson, edge player, Brian Brant, safety. In the second round, Kalijah Kansi, defensive tackle, Cedric Van Pran, center. In the third round, Jalen Hyatt, wide receiver. Fourth round, uh, Jack Campbell, linebacker, Zach guard; Dan Henley, outside linebacker. In the fifth round, Colby Woolen, defensive tackle, DJ Turner, cornerback. And in the sixth round, Chris Rodriguez, running back. Um, it checks a lot of boxes, right? And again, if you're just joining me... Um, not saying this is what they have to do, not this. Not saying this is what I think they're going to do. When I do mock drafts, it just gives me an idea of what it could look like. And can you imagine if they put together uh, another draft like this? And again, another thing all these guys have in common is they all played at big programs, and a lot of them played in big games. And I think that's something that Carol and Schneider have come to value. Early on in their tenure here, they like to take some small school gambles. But I think they like guys that have played a lot of football, played at a high level, played under pressure. Uh, Those blue chip type guys. Um, So what do you think? Um, If you don't follow me on Twitter, you should at Seahawks forever, because this is the season (laughs) and this is the stuff that I love talking about. And if you want to talk about it with me and we can debate and go back and forth on, on where certain players fit. We are going to talk about what it looks like to draft a quarterback sometime soon. In fact, maybe that's what I'll do in two weeks, but if you like mock drafts, make sure and tune in every Monday. And uh, if you like the show, um, whichever podcast app that you use, please subscribe. So you get notification of new episodes. And if you really like the show, leave us a review. That would be a tremendous help to us. Dana and I will be back later this week uh, together to kind of wrap up the season and look ahead. Uh, In the meantime, we'll see you on Twitter and, uh, Thanks for listening to the Field Goals Podcast. Make sure and read the website. All sorts of good stuff there heading into the offseason. Coming up, I'm going to have John Gilbert on the show from the website to talk about salary cap. Uh, there aren't many people out there, if any, that are better at him than breaking this stuff down. So we'll talk about how much room do they really have. And then Griffin Sturgeon's going to be joining me soon to talk about this whole 3-4-4-3 thing and how... Uh, parsing some of Carol's comments about what they're going to do defensively heading into next season. So that's coming up later on the Field Goals Podcast. Until then, go Hawks, and thanks for listening.